0: My name is Tung Wim. Uh, I'm a physician uh, who work in uh, the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, I also do research on public health, health disparities, using what I, we call community-engaged research methods. Uh, most of my work is with Asian American populations, uh, and I actually started out doing uh, Vietnamese-American health work. Uh, I am also uh, a, a, a policy person, uh, I have uh, started uh, two nonprofit organizations. One is called AAPI Victory Alliance, and the other is Pivot, the
1: Progressive Vietnamese American Association. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Anh Tho. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on the podcast what does it mean to be vietnamese to you so uh, i will say that
0: i don't know what it means to be vietnamese but i think i have some ideas what it means to be vietnamese american Uh, i struggle with my identity uh, whether i was vietnamese or vietnamese american or american uh, mostly most through my you know teenage and young adult years Uh, And I I remember the moment when I realized that I wasn't Vietnamese and that I was Vietnamese American. Uh, That was when I went back to Vietnam in 1993. Um, And I realized that the people there didn't think I was all that Vietnamese. (laughs) I didn't feel like I was Vietnamese there. Um, And then when I came back to the United States, I was pretty much settled in my identity as a Vietnamese American. Now, what does it mean to be a Vietnamese American? Um, I think that definition is gonna change uh, with which generation you're from. But I think uh, the, the biggest thing of, uh, that means to be Vietnamese American, number one, is that our, our origin is rooted in war and being a refugee and being in resettlement. Uh, so trauma, um, we have to understand that that's part of our identity, uh, whether or not you went to it directly or secondhand through your parents or grandparents. Uh, second it's um the ability and i think this is a good thing uh to straddle two worlds uh i i I think a lot of time when i was growing up was like oh i really want to have an identity (laughs) and now now i'm like actually it's good to have multiple identities (laughs) and so and even when they don't mesh i don't care i mean i i I love it i love having different points of view i love being able to criticize myself you know oh yeah you know here's what white and a white american person would think like and i think like that and then oh, no, that's no good. Now, this is what a Vietnamese person would think like, and I think like that. So the duality of it, um, uh, my brother and I both, my brother, Viet Nguyen, who wrote The Sympathizer, had different approaches to the concept, but the whole underlying root for The uh, Sympathizer was this is a person from two different places and trying to reconcile those two identity, and he does it in a literary way. I do it in a more, um, uh, I, I major in philosophy in college, so I think about it more in terms of, the philosophical underlying principles, but also um, as a physician, too, I, I think about it in terms of that. So um, what it means to be Vietnamese American is that you get the best of
1: both worlds. How's that? <laughs> Thank you for that. Did you and uh, Viet ever discuss this identity as you were both growing up? No,
0: he and I had a very large gap uh, in when we were growing up. I, I was, I think, six years older than he was. So, when I was a teenager, he was uh, you know, in elementary school. And by the time he became uh, old enough to talk about these things, I was away either at college or medical school, and then he went away to college. So we never really sat down and talked about it. And even now, when we do sometimes approach it, uh, we we come at it from different angles. But I think we, you know, for me, the struggle was I was Vietnamese. Uh, how do I become Vietnamese American? And I think for him, I think he started out because he was so much younger. Uh started out being, you know, American, you know, English speaking American, and then he spent a lot of his I think, a lot of his, you know, uh, young adult years reconnecting with his Vietnamese. Uh and I think he's done a great job of it. But uh but I think we
1: came at it from very different angles. Right. And how old were you when you arrived in the US? I was uh ten. And what was it like
0: uh as a ten year old? so we came uh so we went out we left uh in at the end of april 1975 we were out on a barge and then it ended up in uh eventually uh, uh on a ship and then we went to manila and then we went to guam and then by i think august of 75 we were resettled not resettled but we were in the refugee camp in pennsylvania which is in Fort Indiantown gap uh spent a few months there and then we were then sponsored out of the camp by white families. Uh, it turns out that uh, they, they 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 were trying to do something what I thought was very nice, which is that to take the kids away from the parents so that the parents can learn how to make a living. But it doesn't feel like that in retrospect because I was 10 and I had couldn't be with my parents and I had to go live in a white family. And Viet was even worse. He had to go live in a family when he was five. Uh, and of course that didn't last very long my mom uh, brought him back within a few months but they didn't bring me back for i think
1: a year year and a half <laughs> so, oh wow so that so, really yeah there's a number on you right i mean sound like a positive thing for you oh yeah you know i mean when you're 10 years
0: old uh i don't think of it as traumatic <laughs> i was just like oh this is cool you know who are these people um uh and you don't get to process all of all those meanings and and you know um it wasn't like I didn't have my parents anymore. I knew they were there and I see them once in a while. So um, when you're 10, you're just like living your life. <laughs> uh, but I did, you know, the one thing that people do say is that for many years is that my English is really good. And that was a force uh, yeah. lesson. I, I had to learn how to speak it uh, without an accent mostly and um, learn how to, the American's uh, way of living. You know, I I was watching stuff like, you know, Sesame Street and all that stuff. and. So at 10 years old, it wasn't a terrible thing. I think in retrospect, you know, I wouldn't have due to my I would do that. So some of my worst enemies. But that's how it went.
1: But at 10, would wouldn't your mom and dad fight back and say, whoa, whoa, like you're pulling our family apart. How could they have thought that that was okay? Um,
0: I've never talked to them. I know that they didn't like it. And that's why they went and got Viet back um, uh, really quick. (laughs) But, um. You know refugee parents are are, are, are yeah. hard to understand um well you know partly you know my my, my wife and i talk about this all the time we're like vietnamese parents at least in my generation weren't hands-on they weren't in helicopters right. even in vietnam they were like most of the day they didn't see me i was wow. running around doing whatever i was doing so, so that connection of like i have to be physically be there for the person may not not be the most important thing um i think it's the the emotion the feelings they loved me i I didn't doubt that for a minute uh they had to make a living so that they had to do that Um, it was hard it's a hard living they wouldn't have seen me much anyway (laughs) they they would have been at work all the time so so you know not without really understanding what was going on in their head i think it was bad but it wasn't as bad as we think from where we are and the way we learn to expect what families and 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 parents and children should be doing so
1: so by the time the whole family reunited where and what was that like yeah no we we um
0: my parents managed to get a a, you know bought a house which sounds like a lot big deal but in in harrisburg pennsylvania in the mid 1970s it wasn't very much at all it's still a pretty depressed town and you know property prices are still pretty low but they did get a house and brought both of us back um uh my parents started working in uh, funny enough they were both got they both got job in a nursing homes laundry um and they were never big big uh, you know manual laborers so uh they both got fired i think from that job uh and um and then my dad went to work as an assembler for a typewriter company yeah 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 even the typewriters don't exist anymore <laughs> so so you know And my mom was home most of the time and the kids went to school and 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 that was kind of like okay you know um uh we had snow we had you know a lot of cool stuff that i never seen before so that was that was nice
1: and that reintegration process was it uh comfortable for you uh i don't remember being difficult <laughs> i mean
0: it could have been but you know my uh i'm a pretty uh go with the flow kind of guy even back then and And my parents are, you know, they're not worried about emotional trauma or any of that stuff. They were like, hey, he's back. He's eating. You know, I was like eating them out house and home because I was, you know, entering my teenage years. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, no. Before he wasn't home at night. But now at 10 o'clock at night, he's eating a stack of toast with butter. And that's okay.
1: (laughs) So my uh, observation of um, you um, for the last few years and Your your brother, I actually met him when I was an undergrad at USC. He was coming in to teach. Uh, We we have this you know conception, preconception of of who you two are based on what we see and what we read. But I think about how what what were the things that your parents instilled in both of you to turn out to really powerful. Forces in, in the, the Vietnamese American um, in Vietnamese American society. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure that's not what they ain't, they set out to do. I know that they didn't set out
0: to have a author for a son. They did set out to have a doctor for a son. So, <laughs> uh, and then that's why the first lesson for any parent is that. And I'm a parent now. I have three kids, uh, all of whom are either adults or on the edge of adulthood. Uh, and, and the most important lesson is, uh, they will take the lessons you teach them but they will do it and turn it out their own way if that makes sense uh, and you may not like it, but it really was you who gave them the lessons uh, and 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 you know the main thing that my parents taught both me and my brother I, I mean there are a couple of things the first thing is that uh, never be afraid of hard work uh, they uh, they work hard in Vietnam they work hard in Pennsylvania and later when they came to San Jose they work really hard I mean they work way harder than most people. Uh, they were lucky uh in that when they worked hard they got rewarded monetarily so unlike a lot of people who work hard who don't get a lot of money they had a decent amount of money but my parents when they owned the stores in san jose that they own, uh they worked 260 days a year they took that off they took christmas off that's it uh they worked days nights weekends um and they roped us into doing the work too so it wasn't like we were uh, immune from that so so this whole example of like how hard so sometimes when when i went to medical school and i went to residency and and, and i'm working really hard and we had 80 hour weeks and i was really tired and i, I didn't like it but i was like oh yeah well my parents mm-hmm. this was like the norm for my parents so so why am, what am i complaining about you know and and not necessarily a healthy thing but i think that's just what we got from them uh they also were very very uh entrepreneurial uh and that was actually the thing that I underestimated. Like my parents were very business oriented and they went, both my parents went from uh, no, not having much of an education in North Vietnam to being successful merchant in South Vietnam and then to becoming successful people in the United States. And you don't get to do that in three different, you know, two different refugee experiences if you're not resourceful and, and entrepreneurial. And even though I don't think I have any business sense whatsoever, uh, I took the entrepreneurial and the resourcefulness with me. Um, uh, and, and then so uh, in my career, uh, I, I'm very fond of telling people, uh, I'm always the example in medicine of the person who didn't know what the heck they were doing, made a lot of mistakes and still came out really well. And that's because every time I tried something that worked out was great, and I tried something that didn't work out, I still made it into something that worked out. Uh, and then I ended up doing what I, I wanted to do all along. <laughs> right. And, right. And, and, and that's probably the thing that they gave me the most which is the both the ability to do hard work the ability not to expect too much and then the ability to move around and 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 sort of make uh, changes um and yeah we we, i wrote this in my facebook post about neglect like they were kind of like a benign neglect they they didn't they weren't riding me all the time they just kind of set these broad parameters the other thing that they taught us which was that you also have to contribute to the community so even though they work really hard um, they were always part of the Catholic community in, in San Jose, for example. And my dad became a leader there uh, in his sort of middle age years, uh, and did a lot there. And so again, I'm not a leader in the Catholic community, but I think I'm working with Vietnamese American communities in other ways.
1: Now, do you find that your children go as hard as you and your brother do? Um, no, <laughs> but but they 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 they
0: they probably go harder than other kids if that makes sense um so uh and and they go harder their own way so one of them had to be ridden pretty hard and one of them basically said leave me alone uh and one of them is in the middle you know and so so as a parent you sort of have to figure you know that's the one thing i think about parenthood that i think a lot of Vietnamese parents don't get is they use the same style all the time right and i think uh each kid responds differently uh and so rather than you know again like my parents did draw broad parameters and within that you have to you know, adjust to the the child. And so, but they all work hard. I mean, they're all uh, academically ambitious. Uh, None of them are gonna be successful business people like their grandparents, but,
1: you know. And you know, this is a common theme I always, I search for all the time. Wondering what the third, fourth generation Vietnamese American will look like. You know, we are, we're inheritors of such a beautiful uh, struggle. I mean, at the end of, you know, we can stand back after all these years and say, you know, the struggle that they went through, the difficulty, we inherited the 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 strength and the power, the resilience, the persistence that we see um, modeled in our parents. But our the next generation, it's, it's lost and it's you know, it's like uh, when you transfer computer files or, or video files, it loses its generation.
0: I, I tend I tend to be more I'm not sure the right word is optimistic, but I tend to see um, or outcome-oriented thinking as being uh, not helpful. Hmm. In other words, uh, I, I, I'm always a process person, uh, in, uh, particularly when it comes to human beings. And if I'm doing a project, I would want some outcomes. But when you're raising children or growing up or deciding who you are and what you want to be, those are all process stuff. There's never an, an ultimate outcome out of it. Um, and so, for example, like my parents, um, the most important thing to them, because I grew up so poor, my mom was like, you know, if you ever watch, you know, these, you know, stereotypical thing of Vietnamese young women rowing the boat down the stream to sell, you know, goods mm-hmm. at the market, that, that she, she was like that, she, she was doing that since she was thir- since when she was 13. Uh, and so they were so poor that all they wanted was a, a decent economic life for their kids, so they didn't have to suffer, okay? Uh, and then when it came to me, uh i knew that was there and, and you know i worked on it uh, and what i wanted for my kids was the opportunity for them to choose the things they want to do most in life and sometimes my wife and i sit and complain like oh my our kids are not you know they're not driven like we are they're not they're not you know doing this blah 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 and then we say to ourselves well that was the whole point the whole point is that we want to make a better life for them so they have to do all the things that we had to do to get here you know and so why are we complaining about that The most important thing is to embrace them for who they are and who they want to be uh, within some parameters. Like you don't want them to be turned out to be, you know, somebody who's a criminal uh, or somebody, you know, heaven forbid, uh, so committed to money that they don't think about anything else around them, you know? Um, But they do need to have a certain amount of, you know, financial security so they can live their lives and raise their kids so that, uh, so they don't end up where my parents were when they were poor, right? So uh, you don't want that cycle. That's not the cycle you want, right? It's like, you know, grandparents, poor, parents okay you know we're well doing the grandkids are eh, and then the great grandkids are poor again you know that's a very classic family cycle yes. by the way uh you don't want that but you also but you know like 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 my brother turned out to be this great author no one ever predicted that for him uh, except for maybe him uh and everyone admires him right um well my kids might not ever be a doc great doctor or a great business person but who knows what they're gonna do um, and, and I think from the parents' perspective, because now I'm sort of in the, I, I know both sides now, right? <laughs> Very classic thing. Like, you're, you're not gonna know what's going on until you become parents. Well, I get it now, you know, I get it. Like, I need to enjoy the children growing into the person they, they wanna grow into. Um, as long as they're within the broad parameters of being a good person, that's it. Yeah. Um, and I think most Vietnamese American youth, young people think that way, you know? Were you
1: close to your mom and dad?
0: Uh, again, not in the classic Americans, you know, white Americans, white middle class American yep. sense of being close. We didn't spend a ton of time together. Uh, um, <laughs> it's very funny because I, uh, in my family, my my kids, I'm the notorious one for showing up to everything my kids did. Uh, I, I, you know, they were like they love my wife, but they think I want to be there for them all the time, and and that's sort of the the weird thing, right? Because a lot of people think that they go together, like a lot of uh, people now raising kids are like you love them you be there for them right right but that's not how kids think about it like you can have love and you don't have to show up and you can show up and you don't necessarily get love just because you show up i mean they love me but you know you know what i'm saying right um uh but but my parents never showed up for anything <laughs> uh, because i were working three and three days a year <laughs> you know they showed up for i mean i did all kinds of extracurricular activities i never showed up they showed up for my high school graduation my dad flew across the country to my my college graduation. My mom did because she was running the store, <laughs> you know. And so when you think about these sort of classic way of being uh, and the expectations, and I didn't find I didn't think that was lacking. I didn't I didn't know any better. Uh, and then by the time I figured out that it could have been better, I would have wanted to spend more time with my parents. I understood why it didn't happen, right? Because they were busy you know right uh, living and making a living so that i can go do all these other things so 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 i think i think the the way i would say is we're very close but we're not physically close and we're not even talking close in other words we don't I mean, my mom never shared a whole ton of things i mean she she would drop like these mystery statements and, and 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 i would have to try to figure it out but she won't talk about it and then my dad talked a lot but he talked a lot about the things that he cared about yeah. which was the catholic church Making money, uh, and and basically that was it. <laughs> and, and and you know we try to figure out our commonalities through that. You um, know? I, oh, sorry, he talked about his music too. Because I didn't want to make him turn into like a, you know, the, the stodgy person. But he he does have an artistic side to him. So
1: <laughs> your your mother, um, you said that that there's not, there wasn't a whole lot. You know, she spoke cryptically. It sounded like. But you you you, you know we've talked about her mental health. Um, at some point, uh, you're finally ready to talk about it. And, um, I, I'm curious, uh, what led to her, um, condition? So the first thing as a doctor,
0: I will say is that there are many potential explanations, but illness is illness and there's usually underlying biological problem. Mm. All right. So just let's start out with that. Okay. Because I don't want us to talk about experiences that mean a lot and then say, well, it was those experiences that, that made her the way she was. Right. Not everyone who goes with those experiences had those same health outcomes, although they're more likely to have those health outcomes, right? But I, I want you to understand that the interplay between experience and trauma and biology regarding mental health is not clear-cut. But as a doctor, I try to, because the Vietnamese-American people are so fixated, on uh, not Vietnamese-American, but a lot of traditional Vietnamese people are very fixated on the idea that there's no... If something is wrong with the way you think and the way you feel that it's not a is something wrong with you as a person morally <laughs> as opposed to something biologically wrong with your brain okay and I want to make sure that we are clear that when someone's you know depressed or anxious there are actually biological things going on and in the same way that my biology makes me look the way I do and the, my, your biology makes you look the way you do um the biology of a person who gets an experience and become depressed might be different from the biology of a person who have an experience and don't become you know have a major depression
1: episode does that make sense makes perfect i just want to make that very clear and i don't Um, know how many people are actually thinking like that i mean outside you know as a lay person i've never thought of that i've always thought you know these traumatic issue uh, events trigger these things and we go into tailspins because we can't deal with it and we need mental health professionals to to help. Yeah.
0: My, my 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 One of my most favorite saying that I came up with, oh, I'm not sure somebody else probably came up with too, but there are no simple answers to a complex problem. Okay? <laughs> so that's why everyone, everyone, you, all the people out there would, you know, beliefs that you're kind of like, eh, they're trying to get a simple answer yeah. to a complex problem. And even if the simple answer has some truth and some relationship to the complex problem, it's not enough, right? So let like, I me mean, take a classic example of the COVID people. They're like, oh, the COVID vaccine cannot work because some people who get the vaccine gets COVID. They don't understand that there's a lot more going on there than just that right but that's how they hang their hat on these single things and that's why i want to make sure that complex things are co- are understood as complex things and, and and when you do that then what actually that does is it allows you to, two, to do things one is to delve deeper into exactly what that is and second is give you some humility and think about even though you think you know what this is, you still don't. And I don't, actually. If you ask me why this Vietnamese person became depressed and that Vietnamese person didn't become depressed, I can come up with a list of potential explanations. But I still couldn't tell you with certainty that this is what happened.
1: Right? Couldn't yes. And and this is giving me a better framework to ask questions now uh, in my own work because I tend to ask very uh, binary questions. It's either this or that. Uh, because that's sort of the way we kind of think, we want like simple answers. It's like, oh, you do that and then you become successful, you do that, you avoid criminal, you know, or you do that and you will stay healthy. But there's so much complexity, um, in everything and not just health and politics. Yeah, remember the binary thinking? I don't know, I mean, uh,
0: classically, binary thinking is more Western, uh. And you know yin yang is not binary, right? You know the concept of yin and yang, which is the you know one side influencing the other, uh, is more Eastern. Although there is a lot of binary thinking in Eastern culture too. But I just want to you know, and this started out with my conversation with talking about the sympathizer and then one side and the other side, Vietnamese American identity, one side and the other side. And what I'm, I, I think you're getting your hand on it, which is that there is nothing simple about any of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can even draw a pole here and a pole here, but in between, all this thing moves back and forth all the time. Okay, so, 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 and 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 if you really want to get into, you know, one of my scientific, you know, um, uh, uh, belief is that people don't understand probability. They think it's zero or one, it's right. zero or zero percent or hundred percent. They don't understand that there's nothing zero percent except birth, and nothing zero percent except hundred percent except death. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and in between there's nothing that's zero and one and, and, and trying to live your life as zero and ones. We're not machines. We're not computers. We don't live in zeros and ones. We live in a lot of, you know, in between. Okay. And I, I you know, people will say you are very successful. I'm like, well, yes, but not zero, hundred percent successful, you know, or, you know, things like that. So, I mean, I just want to introduce this idea of fluidity and the same thing, you know, you think about COVID. You know, uh, people, and you're like, oh, they they don't believe in COVID. No, are Each of those group, you can break them down into smaller and smaller groups, and and so you know. Uh, and the thing is, I do health education for a living, and I try to convince patients to do the right thing. And if I approach every patient as zeros or ones, right, it's never going to work. It
1: has to be each person, each thing, at each time. You know, you get pretty <laughs> philosophical for a medical doctor. What what what's the root? Why why did you uh, study philosophy at Harvard? Um, because I was growing up,
0: they're like, he, he's such a philosopher, you know, and I was like, well, you know, if they're going to tell me that, then maybe I should figure out what the heck that is. And, you know, and I, I went into, but I think philosophy, philosophy is not necessarily a great measure. Um, I did become a philosopher and I can talk about why that it was, but, but it teaches you how to think and to challenge your assumptions. Okay. And and in science that science does that too, but it does it in a much more rigid way. Sci- scientists, you know, they have certain ways of thinking and certain ways of doing things. And yes, they want to prove this or disprove that. But they're they're very, most of the time, at least the way that scientists, the way I used to think about them when I was young, was very again very zeros and ones. Is this true? Is this not true? You know. Um, uh, and, and so, and then arts was, you know, the other option was, you know, more the humanities and the literature and there was no zeros and one, but there was like really no direction at all. <laughs> like it could be anything. And I was not that kind of person. I was not ready to be the kind of person. So I tried to straddle those two. So philosophy, you know, in the old days, actually philosophers were scientists, you know, they, there's a philosophy of science, <laughs> you know, before Newton, uh, maybe there was a philosopher who thought about what Newton thought about before he proved it right. mathematically. Right. so. So so, you know, in the old days, uh, philosophers really think we, we're still pushing the boundaries a little bit, but nobody listens to us anymore. <laughs> but uh, but but, you know, that's why I wanted to do it. Uh, and then I did it. And then I realized that um, uh, for me, I'm both a thinker and a doer uh, and and philosophy is too much thinking and not enough doing. Um, and so my job was to figure out a job where I could do a lot of thinking and a lot of doing. So.
1: So what inspired you to go to med school?
0: Oh, I'm Vietnamese. My parents wanted a
1: doctor. uh, Right.
0: So... (laughs) No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking.
1: At at Harvard, you finished with a philosophy uh, degree, but uh, did you think about medical school at that time? Oh, yeah. No.
0: I'm a refugee kid. I mean, come on, man. I always have a plan B and a plan C. It was never... You know there's no i mean my brother went wholeheartedly into his arts and i'm like no he didn't actually he became an english professor you know if he was really committed 100 he would have gone into a novel writing job not a professor job right he had a plan b and a plan c too and and and, and me i definitely have multiple plans and when i went to medical and went to college i said i'm going to be a philosophy major i'm going to do pre-med too because uh, I don't know how it's going to work out, you know, and my parents had already, you know, primed me to become a doctor. I actually didn't want to become a doctor because they kept telling me I want to become a doctor. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I kind of got this middle way in college of like, oh, philosophy and medicine, philosophy and medicine, you know. Um, and so I could do both. Um, and so that's what I did.
1: So when did you start to become a little bit more political?
0: Oh, that's that's a long way, <laughs> uh, you know, um, the idea started, uh, in probably, um, college. Uh, I remember this event absolutely distinctly. It was so, like, like most of my college life, I don't remember a thing, but, but this event, I remember there was a, um, I was at Harvard and there was a, a place there called the Kennedy school, uh, of public policy. Uh, and it was pretty new at that time when I was there and they held a conference, uh, on the Vietnamese war the Vietnamese, the residual of the Vietnamese war. Okay. And I was actually, you know, that was like a junior. I was uh, the president of the Vietnamese Student Association, which consisted of like eight people, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, and I, we went right. Like, like we have to go It's about the Vietnam war, the entire panel and everything that they were talking about were white people. You know, they were like white people talking about white people experience in Vietnam and <laughs> you know? uh, very smart and knowledgeable white people. And I'm standing up there. I wasn't even on the first floor of this meeting. I was like on the balcony. That's how far back I was. And I, for no no, no reason, I did not plan to do it. I just shouted out. I said, what about the Vietnamese people's perspective in all of this? That's what I said. And I was mortified that I said it. (laughs) I was like, holy cow, you know, I'm interrupting this huge meeting. uh, And you know, what the heck? You know, I'm like a really, you know, Button-down guy. Why, why would I go and do something like that? But then the rest of my life there's been moments like that where I, it just comes out It's not like I deliberately plan it. Yeah, but that's how I recognize that I've gotten to the point where I'm fed up with Whatever it was that was going on uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a very deliberate person. I would plan things. I would work behind the scene on things But when I come out and say something that's harsh uh, uh, It's because I think that it, that that I couldn't take it anymore, and I think it has to be said. Generally, I've been po- have positive reinforcement. People say, you know, uh, you say things that we th- we've been thinking, and 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 that sort of encourages me to do it. But that was a moment, and I, I and I think my I was like I was afraid to go home and see my friends in the VSA, or like, did they think I was like an idiot or. You know, I think I was like, cause you know, the Vietnamese and Asian ideas that you can't be loud and vocal. Keep your mouth shut. Yeah, Yeah. keep your mouth shut. The nail that sticks up gets pounded down. And why did I say that? But you know, I mean, now we complain about all the time, right? Oh, you have a mantle, all white. All men and no women on this topic, right? Uh, if you have a Vietnam war conversation now and there is no Vietnamese people, we you should never bother, yeah. you know? I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous, right? I didn't know about any of that stuff back then I just felt it
1: you know and, and what was the r- repercussions in the room
0: nothing nobody paid attention to me and that's actually not an unusual response to when you're working with uh, minority causes uh, in this country white people don't pay attention and they was just like oh but they didn't even like do anything There's no- it was you know I I don't know I mean um I, I again i straddle sort of authority and and anti-authority positions all the time and you know this came later like uh, in the 1990 early 1990s when the aids epidemic was going on i, I, I was a health provider and i like to do think about health research and all the health researchers were like um uh yeah leave it leave, you know leave it to us to do this work to solve the aids problem and all the people with aids were like no we're dying you know um why aren't we part of this conversation and when I talk about things like community-engaged research and, you know, co- you know coalition building and all that stuff, I, I live this now. You can't do the work or talk about somebody else's issue unless they're there, okay? You can't. You cannot. And, and maybe that was where it started, that moment when I stood up there without me really thinking about it uh, and say, well, why are you talking about a war that killed a million Vietnamese Americans and there was no Vietnamese person there? You know, or even you know, if we were you know, they may have put a Vietnamese person there someday, but it would be somebody from the north and not a Vietnamese American in America, where there was hundreds of thousands of us. You know,
1: since your uh your time at that Kennedy Center um, outburst to today, do you feel like the engagement in the the public is it more engaged in politics, less engaged, or is it sort of a wave? How do you feel about it, especially Vietnamese American engagement?
0: The Vietnamese Americans in general have always been engaged in politics when it came to Vietnam and communism. They got loud, they get rude, they get angry, for good reasons, you know, there are a lot of he- emotional issues and, and real trauma that they were working on. But they stayed away from American politics otherwise for years. I knew this, I, I you know, I watched it, they, they, they didn't engage at all. Um, and then, of course, even if you engage in American politics, if you engage it in a way that the people who were worried about communism and all that stuff uh, didn't like, they'll just call you a communist and you know forget about you. You know, and so for many, many years, I did not deal with politics. I so until I was um, actually, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But but I my attitude once I became a doctor and a researcher was. Uh, you know there's a vietnamese saying that is actually the name of one of the project that we have là right health is gold right health is gold um uh and i intuitively understood that the way to empowerment and political activism is through health and now you are seeing it all, all over the place right but i could not go into a vietnamese american community and say let's talk about democracy let's talk about right uh, uh, uh you know exercising our power uh it'd be like a no, a no starter you know, they won't trust me or they'll try to turn me to whatever their ideology was but if i went in there and say let's talk about health uh, and they're like yeah let's talk about health and then we're like well why is this not happening why is this not happening why is this not happening like why is it that you don't have a doctor who speaks vietnamese why is it that when you 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 go you, when you're a 50 year old you know uh, nail salon worker that you can't get health insurance uh or you can't afford health care right i mean you start asking those kinds of questions and then people are like oh i care about my health i care about my family and this is why i'm not getting what i need what do i need to do you work people toward empowerment by looking at that rather than the other way around working on empowerment so you can get them to health. see make sense yes it makes perfect uh, sense. and and i did that for like 20 years and, and that makes sense to me because i care about health i do health and uh, ultimately, to be honest, I mean, we can argue all day about what kind of job you want, but listen, when you get sick, your health is number one, okay? It's, the fact that you cannot worry about your health is actually a privilege. Uh,
1: right. As a
0: person who deals with people who are sick all the time, uh, the fact that 90% of us go around every day not thinking a thing about their health uh, is a huge privilege. Uh, but when you do get uh, unhealthy, then all you care about mostly is your health. Um, you care about your family too, obviously. But... um, so I, I was very happy doing that, uh, until I got to the point where I realized there was only so much I could do in health and empowerment without going over to the political side. Uh, and that was because when I was appointed, so so I was doing all this stuff, and, and I, I got appointed to the Obama Commission on Asian American and Pacific Islanders. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, and now I have an opportunity to make changes that I couldn't do as a researcher, as a doctor, as a community
1: person. Um, and here's the government this is great you know i can before tell you before you go on how do you get just appointed to do something like that
0: yeah well there are ways <laughs> uh, but that's not how i did it <laughs> so um so this is you know this is the I mean, why well, i really mean it when i say my life if you look at people look at me they're like oh he's so well, maybe some people will say that but he, he's so successful. He must have done all this isn't it? and I'm like, no I'm just like wandering around, you know picking up stuff all the time, you know, and and I really mean this actually because Everybody tells a story about how they became successful. I'm always very skeptical I'm always very skeptical okay, because the same person another person could have the same exact story to tell who wasn't successful Does that make sense makes perfect sense. you only listen to the person who's successful all the guys wandering out there going oh i did this and this just like that guy but i'm not successful nobody's listening to them (laughs) okay (laughs) so so just you know take everything with a grain of salt every single advice that someone gives you about your career uh may or may not work for you (laughs) and the point is if it doesn't work out did you really were you happy doing it okay so so that's how i you know i tell people this i'm like you know i don't follow any particular path uh, anyway, so back to this. So I was, you know, a reasonably successful researcher um, and I had like started thinking about policy. So I, I said to someone uh, who's now uh, a very successful health policy person, but she was only okay at that time. I said to her, Hey, I know you're interested in health policy. I am interested in getting, I want to get into it. Uh, do you have any opportunities for me? And, and she's like, okay, apply for this. Uh, fellowship. I apply for this fellowship. I didn't get it. All right, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, uh, then the Obama, uh, the President Obama came. He created the commission and he appointed um, a bunch of commissioners. And it was very clear that they were trying to pick every Asian ethnicity, like Chinese, South Asian, Filipino. They didn't have a Vietnamese person. And the Vietnamese community were like up in arms. Like well, the one who cared, we like up in arms. Like where's the Vietnamese person, right? It turns out and i don't i didn't find out about this until later was that number one the vietnamese americans were so argumentative that they couldn't agree on anyone (laughs) okay so that's number one (laughs) number two the people that came in to be considered either didn't pass vetting for whatever reason i don't know why there's a huge vetting process uh, or they had some opposition within the vietnamese american community okay this is what happens when you don't pay attention to the politics where you live, and you only pay attention to the politics back home, okay? They were fighting each other about what's going on in Vietnam, and here's a prime opportunity for them to do something here, and they did. So they're like, oh, we're desperate. We need to find a Vietnamese person. So what better than to find a Vietnamese person no one's ever heard of? <laughs> so so what happened was that they, the, the chair of the commission called my, and, and they also, this was when the Affordable Care Act was coming in. So they, um, they're like we need somebody who has health because they didn't have anybody with health experience on the commission at that time they had the people from community organizations politics business and all that stuff and they asked this woman and she would have been on the commission but she was chinese so 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 they're like oh, you need somebody who's health and vietnamese and over time i built up that reputation as the vietnamese american health person who's actually vietnamese there are other people who did that work who weren't vietnamese and so and she knew i was interested so she said tung you want to talk to the chair of the commission and I did. And and that's how I got into commission.
1: Yeah, that's a really random very random. And
0: it changed my life. Um, but uh it's like again, processes. You tell people you're interested, you do the best job you can for what you do, and then the opportunity comes. Of course the property never comes. So you can't take my story and say you should yeah. take that path, right? <laughs> there are plenty of people like me who didn't get asked, right? So so you know, I'm not taking any credit for any of this stuff, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's just how things mental. are. Yeah, well with that, but then you think about the Vietnamese American refugee experience. Everybody did the same thing and some people made it to the United States, some people never did, and some people die on the way, okay? You, you can't look at that and say, well, we did something better, that's why we're alive, and they did something bad and that's why they're dead. You know, it's fortune, right? It's it's, it's whether it's you have faith or you have believe in luck or whatever, uh, these are the random events that happen to people. And that's why I don't put a lot of uh, stake on
1: success versus not success.
0: Uh, a lot of it's very random. So,
1: God, I want to ask this question, but I hope you don't get offended. Uh, your father was Catholic. It di- sounds like a very strong Catholic, as my father and mother were. Uh, what does that, what does that place you today, with the Being luck? Personally? Or, yes, you personally with luck and God and life and you know, did, does it have much of an influence? on you when i I was younger i you know i I didn't believe the way
0: they did they they believe very much that it was their faith that got them through you know um the northern southern petition in 1954 uh, made them successful in south vietnam got them out of the country kept them alive made them successful in the united states there was no question in their mind that it was their faith that did it okay and i don't blame them because again like i said how else do you explain (laughs) it you know they had to have an explanation okay um You know what i said before about simple answers to complex questions (laughs) religion is a relatively simple answer to a very complex question and it's a part of the answer and so i feel like i'm not a devout catholic Uh, i haven't rejected it Uh, i don't you know the catholic church itself has shown itself to be very very um, oppressive Uh, and and some of the thing that turned me off was obviously the the way they treat women the way they treat uh children in the pedophilia but in general um so i, I can't you know as, as an institution i don't i don't subscribe to it too much i mean i like the pope uh and i still go to church every week cuz my dad goes to church and i have to take him you know but 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 it's not to me as an institution i don't buy i don't buy into the into the catholic church but i do believe that there are some other forces going on besides me and my own mm doing i don't know what that is i think it's god but i could be wrong i mean again i'm I'm very comfortable now at my age living with uncertainty yeah and with complexity when there's no simple things
1: but when you're sitting in the pew with your father and you're listening to the homily or the first gospel or second gospel readings do you engage or do you are you checked out well, I'm not engaged anymore because I've heard them a million
0: times. I mean, I hear them all the time. It's the same. I mean, really, it's the same story every year. <laughs> you know, so from a standpoint of entertainment, no. But you know, there are messages in the Catholic Church that are, I think unbelievably cool. I mean, certainly, if you if you look at Jesus as a liberator rather than a um, institution, um, everything he says. You know, everything he says about the poor, about the foreigners. Uh, how he treats women um are good things on, on point yeah there's nothing just because put- a bunch of other guys decided to turn to some other weird thing doesn't mean that, yeah. that he was what he says or what supposedly he says that other people copy down right uh, was wrong uh, i mean but then that's like the case with most religion most religion have a lot of truth in them or, no, forget the word truth, I don't even know that that's true, but uh, have a lot of insight and guidance that we all should pay attention to. That's what I care about. So
1: so going back to this appointment uh, in the Obama administration, you were there for how many years?
0: I <laughs> Yesterday was the swearing-in of this current commission, and I, they asked me to come back to talk to them, and I told them that I was so bad the first time that they had to make me do a remedial term On the Commission so I the the original Commission was appointed I think in 2010 they invited me to come on in 2011 and then it ended in 2012 so I was invited back with the second Commission because he has his second term Obama did and he has a second Commission and I was on the second term uh, and I was chair for the second term so I went from 2012 to 2017 so what happened was um, in, in when when Trump won uh, in, in uh, November of 2016, a lot of us were uh, on the commission had a you know serious conversation with each other like what are we going to do uh, because obviously Trump was not someone that we felt was uh, good for the Asian American Pacific Islander communities, um, and there were three groups. There was the one group that says we're leaving we're resigning no matter what, we don't want to work for this guy. Another group that says we're staying on, we, we have to stay on because we have to moderate whatever it is that he's gonna do. And a bunch of us were sort of in the middle. I was in the middle, but I was a chair, so I couldn't really, um, I, I didn't want to come out and say what was on my mind because a chair is, is a weird position in that mm. way. Uh, but then what happened was uh, he came into office and then he passed the Muslim ban. Uh, this was like a few days right after he, he he went into office And all of us were sitting there looking at each other and we're like well hey wait a minute you know you know one of the reason why we're here is the japanese americans got put into concentration camp um and this guy's anti-muslim and he's banning i mean how could you possibly justify serving and so a bunch of us resigned including me but at that moment in time i had decided that it was my personal uh, uh values at stake not as the chair of the commission uh, and f- I think four of them stayed on and they stayed on for a year or two, uh, but they didn't really get anything done. But the rest of us, I think something like 13 or 14 of us resigned and it remained the, b- the biggest mass resignation from Trump's administration. Uh, as far as we know. So
1: and-, and looking back, do you think that was the right thing to walk away from? That?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, you know, you get to be in some position of power and you get to make decisions. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, well, why do you want to be in power in the first place? It wasn't powerful. I mean, the commission is not that big of a deal, but for me, it was relative power. So, you know, why do you want to be power in the first place? Well, I want to be power because I want to carry out my values and my policies and my thinking. Okay, fine. Uh, you have to make compromises. So sometimes you have to compromise your value and your policies to stay in power, right? Um, but then if you're just staying in power for the sake of staying in power, then why are you in power, you know? And, and I just realized, you know, I can't work for somebody who's completely against everything I believe. Yeah, they can make me vice president and I still could do anything I wanted, right? So if I wouldn't take that position, why would I be sort of a figurehead? Because actually, you, you actually end up being a sort of like, oh, look, he cares about API. He still has his commission. Look at these commissioners. He loves Vision Americans. I know some Asian Americans, you know, I'm a racist, but I know some Asian Americans. You know, I don't want to serve that role for him, you know? And so it was really no no question in my mind, you know, some people say, well, you should stay on and do something. And you saw over the course of his administration that people who decide to stay on and do Dropping something like flies doing nothing, you know, yeah. uh, they they just basically, you know, uh, uh, just basically tools for what he, what he wanted and what his people wanted. And so
1: um, I think we made the right decision. So then when you left there, Did ideas? What ideas did you have to stay engaged in uh, the political arena? So one of the things that I did uh, on the commission, which was really
0: hard for me is because I was the only Vietnamese American. I think in the second term, there was Linda Fan who came from Texas, but uh, wherever I went, like Vietnamese people would approach me because, like, you know, it's a big deal. You're on the, no one understand that an advisory commission is an advisory commission, but they say it's a white house advisory commission. So you must like be in the white house all the time. And so they, they, they think it's a big deal. So they come and talk to me and they're always trying to pitch things like people who come and talk to a commissioner. It's always, always has some agenda, either an issue that they want to pitch or themselves that they want to pitch. Okay. So, cause everyone have access to power. Right. So, uh, And I really try to avoid the older Vietnamese people (laughs) because I knew that if they came up to me, there were chances are they're gonna talk to me about Vietnam and communism and all that stuff. And we made it very clear on the commission that we don't talk foreign policy. We have no control over foreign policy, so don't talk to us about it. And I love that because I don't, then I didn't have to like piss anybody off. I was like, oh, sorry, I'm on the commission. If you're talking to me as a commissioner, I can't talk to you about foreign policy okay but i was always nervous when they came up to me because i knew because it's been this way for 40 years okay it's it's like this obsession okay you know i mean again i'm not trying to denigrate anyone i know that people suffer people had friends and families who died in the war and all this stuff okay but it's been 40 years okay and your children and your grandchildren are growing up here they're not going back to vietnam and living there Um, there is no revolution coming in vietnam as far as i can tell You know, so what are we doing? Uh, Why are we doing this? Why can't we stay focused on the work that's here? Because when you already go talk about Vietnam, it was very divisive, right? Like everybody hated each other, whatever position you were taking. And so you couldn't organize, you could not organize a Vietnamese American political force if you allow Vietnam to come into it. And so I said, let's look around for who's doing Vietnamese American work. And I found almost nothing. There were some organizations, they're sort of, you know, straddling the fence. And either they were really into the service provision, which is great. They provide services to the community, or they were like refugee type organization that still goes back to Vietnam and do all that stuff. Those are basically the two big Vietnamese types of organizations. Um, and I say, who's working on our issues, you know, uh, at the highest policy level? And we didn't find any. So that's why I started uh, uh, PIVOT, um, the Progressive Vietnamese American uh, Organization. And it was a mess, too, because, you know, to even put that group together was a huge mess, like a lot of arguments and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I, I, But I, one of the nice things someone ever said to me afterwards was somebody who is very experienced in Vietnamese American community stuff came up to me and said, look, you know, I, when I went to the first meeting, I was like, oh, it's going to be more of the same stuff. People were sitting there arguing with each other and, you know, throwing their ideology around and. And, and you guys were doing that, but I was watching how you were doing, it and I was like, oh, maybe there's something here. <laughs> and he said, yeah, and, I, and then it turned out that the, 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 even though it was messy the first few months, uh, I think we came. And I think the reason why we, we were able to coalesce was because we said no talk about foreign policy, nothing. That was too divisive. We knew that even in a room of 100 progressive Vietnamese-American if you
1: brought up Vietnam, there will be like 40 different viewpoints. So and you just cannot coalesce around that. Well, wow, that is a key factor in the success of Pivot. It's, um, uh, it's it's such a. A mess, a vortex of just like the way it's just like you get you can't solve it. The emotions that people feel.
0: Yeah, and I think it's I, I never discount anyone's emotion and their experience and their, what they care about. But sometimes, and I'm a doctor, so take my word for it, people avoid one thing by thinking about another thing. This is a classic way of dealing with things, with life, right? So so on the one hand, yes, you care a lot about Vietnam and what happened and all that stuff. But on the other hand, you're not paying attention to your kids and your family here. Why is that? You know, Sometimes it's because Life here is really hard, um, and you can't make changes. I think if you're poor uh, or, or or you know uh, underempowered, you're 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 like, oh, look at all these bad things happening to my family, and I had to work so hard, and why is it like this, you know? And and you think about it, and you're like, um, but I'm a powerful person. Why 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 is this happening? And the way you turn that around in one way is to say, I want to work on something else. Um, that matters. (laughs) And, and even though they're both sort of like limited outcomes, right? On the one hand, you're still struggling economically here and you're certainly not overturning the communist party in Vietnam. (laughs) Somehow it feels better to be working on something over there than something over here, you know, and I was never like that. I'm, I'm I'm a doctor, you know, I got to deal with the problem in front of me. The problem in front of me is not what's happening in Vietnam. I mean, I love the Vietnamese people. I want them to do well, but it's not my business. I have no right to go to Vietnam and tell the Vietnamese people living there how their government should be. Okay? It's their job. It's their position. That's what they have to do. I don't know what it is, but they have to do it. It can't be me. Okay? Um, whereas I'm living here in this country, I'm a Vietnamese person living in the United States. I have every right to decide what happens here in this country. As a matter of fact, if every Vietnamese person in Vietnam thought think the way I do about being Vietnamese making in America. Beep, 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 beep. You know, that may be the revolution they need, right? But 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm just like saying that that you have to engage and live the life that you're in. Stop thinking about what happened yesterday or what happened 3,000 miles away. So this had to be repeated over and over in the early days of Pivot then, right? No, because this is the most amazing thing. I have nothing to do with it. All I did was put a pole in the ground and say, come join us. And everybody came because you know why? A lot of people felt like me. I told you, like, when I was standing in a room and I was going to say something, there are a lot of people who comes and tells me, oh, I felt exactly the same way. Well, this is what happened. They're like, oh, my God, I didn't know there were these people who think like this. I thought everyone was, like, anti-communist, pro-republican, pro-... pro You know? And I'm like, no, actually. You know, they have to give these polls about how Vietnamese-American votes and stuff like that. they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they vote Republican. No, that's not true. In the past, it was, like, 55%... Republican, forty-five percent Democrat, you know, or sixty-five percent. But really, most, a lot of Vietnamese Americans are in the middle, you know, uh, and so this 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 uh, this uh, narrative that the Vietnamese American are Republicans is ridiculous. Like again, zeros and ones, right? Yeah. You're either Republican or you're Democrat. No, most Vietnamese Americans are in the middle, okay, uh, and a lot of them are Democrats and a lot of them are Republicans, okay, uh, and depending on the topic, the middle slides one way or the other, right? And so all these people who are in the middle who wanted to be a little lefty um and all the lefties or are, are democrats are like oh my god there is actually a vietnamese american group that actually thinks this way and that's how we approach pivot If even comes to us and say what's pivot about i'm like what do you want it to be about <laughs> I'm, we're not here to tell you exactly i mean we're here to help you coordinate and do but but people are like oh you know what you know what do you think pivot's gonna be i'm like Look, look, we have a mission statement, we have a vision statement, you want to read it. That's fine. It's there. But how we implement it, how we operationalize it is up to you. Hmm. And a lot of people are like, I want to join Pivot. And then and, and then later like, well, why are you asking me to do all this stuff? I'm like, well, why did you join Pivot? You know, you're going to give us money. You're going to do some work. Okay? <laughs> We're not an organization that's for you to join and have, you know, you know, foo-foo-food, food, food, you know, I mean, have food, let's have fun but you're going to work or give us money. I mean, I'm just blunt right now. Like you can be a pivot follower and a pivot sympathizer, whatever term you want to use. But if you want to be in pivot, you work or you give us money or you do both. Okay, we're not here. We're not people who are just going to sit and be passive. I think that separates us a little bit from other organizations. We are not going to sit and be passive and we're not going to be top down necessarily. a lot of our big projects that came out came from people who are um, in pivot for a particular reason. They wanted to push this thing, and we enable them to do it.
1: Okay, um, and that's how that's how you do community engagement. Okay. So, so what is the structure like? You said it's not top down, and you've emphasized that. How do you function? How do you operate? Well, we have a board of directors, and the board is very hands-on.
0: Like a lot of boards are strategic and 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 raise money. That's like how most board of directors work. But because we have no staff or we had no staff, we actually for us to for the last five years, a lot of us, you know, are actually out there creating programs and projects and doing it and recruiting, you know, volunteers. And then we also pay some consultants to do the work. That's basically it. We have a bunch of committees so that we at least have some areas that we work on so for example we have a policy committee that looks at policy that is relevant and then they come up with strategy of addressing those policies we have a uh, young vietnamese american group we created it originally because we knew that there's a risk that we going to be taken over by middle class middle age professionals like me uh, and so we like we have to have leadership and thinking about the younger generation right from the get-go it's not a second thought uh, and so we have a young vietnamese american committee uh, Philip Nguyen, I think you know him, uh, is one of the leaders of that. Uh, we want to make sure that that's connected very tightly to the Vietnamese Student Association. Again, we're not trying to push a particular policy. We're just trying to make sure that the right people are in the room when we're discussing the policies. Uh, we have a, uh, a huge media team that works on social media. I think the our social media approach is actually what's made us really well known. We've done a lot of different kind of work, but the our, our our reach on social media has actually helped us. We have a candidate support team that uh, committee that actually vet people, including Vietnamese American candidates. Uh, one of our most proud moment was within a few months of our founding, we helped Kathy Tran to get elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, uh, the first uh, Vietnamese American for sure in that state house. But like you know, we 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 go down that path, and um, uh, and right now it's mostly volunteers and some consultants doing work. Uh, we are, you know, just in case, I'll make a pitch. We're trying to hire our first executive director. So if you give us money, we'll be able to hire a really good executive director and we'll be able to take our next step. So
1: pivotnetwork.org. Thank you for that pitch. Um, what, what are some of the KPIs or do you have any metrics uh, that measure any type of success? This is a
0: really important question. And I tend to be this annoying philosopher person who always turn the question back on the questioner, because actually who determine who asked the questions and what kind of questions they ask is actually the first measure of power. Okay, um, I I flip this. I mean we get this question asked a lot, and, and 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 data is not cheap. Okay, for me to show that something worked, I have to collect data. Uh, I have a choice between spending money on collecting data or spending the money on doing the work okay so I always flip it back to donors and I say well how do you know well will you tell me how much money you're giving for this community what percentage of your budget goes to this community and they're like well I either they won't know or they won't tell you and I say well you can't ask me for accountability when you have no accountability right and a Vietnamese person say like, I want to join pivot and what have you done so i can give you my time i mean we we will do our due diligence and give them what we've learned but i have ask them back well, what have you given to the vietnamese american community why are you asking me that question what have you done and if you haven't done anything then why you know you can't you can't ask me a question that you can't live up to right uh, if all you do is sit at home and argue fine that's what you do how much of an effect does it have on anything or anybody's lives well it doesn't so if you wanna do something for your community, you don't have to join us, you can do something else, but go do something. Yes. They come back and ask me how we're doing. Okay, uh, I'm being a little bit more you know, aggressive than I'm, I mean to. We have done a lot of good stuff. I mean, number one, and then the other thing that's important is, and I, I emphasize this, and a lot of people don't get it. When they ask about outcomes, they are asking about hard outcomes, and I do health research, so I know what I'm talking about. They ask about hard outcomes, like how many people did you elect? how do you know that what you did helped that person get elected right that's the fundamental question about elections right number one no one actually knows that answer for any group (laughs) like we claim things like oh the black voters in georgia got you know this done or the asian voters it's all inferred it's not causal and there is no study design that's going to get you there (laughs) okay (laughs) i know this i I do research for, for for a living but you can do. You can point to that, like, oh, we did get a lot of Asian votes out. We did get a lot of Vietnamese votes out, right? So, so those things you can point to. But the other thing that's really important is the biggest outcome isn't an election. You know, it's, it's it comes and it goes, and someone gets elected. So they come and they go, and you know, the most important outcome is capacity. Because every if, if we fail as pivot, then what will happen is that everything goes away, and the next generation will come in. They have to spend another five years. Building them up to do what it is that they want to do. Right. Okay. So I think actually capacity is way more important than any one particular project outcomes. And the fact that we even exist, the fact that every time something that happens with Vietnamese American people come to us, I, we've actually gotten grant money. People just come to us and give us money. They're like, oh, we want to work Vietnamese American. Pivot's great. Uh, even though this is not a topic you've been working on, we'll give you the money. <laughs> We don't even go out and apply for grants anymore. I mean, we will, you know, we will we, we have a strategy for all that stuff. But right now people are throwing money at us. That, that's the proof I want. <laughs> the right, proof right. I want is they, they think we're powerful enough to give us resources to do the things that we want to do. Okay. They don't even demand that we do anything for them. They's just like just work with the community, you know? That's to me
1: is actually proof of, 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 of um, uh, power. So so it sounds a lot like optics, you know, I'm trying to figure out capacity and and how not not necessarily how we can define capacity. But it sounds more broad like optics is very important and vital to the mission. Well, optics is okay, except I think the word tend
0: to have a negative connotation, like it's not it's not substantial. Okay, Um, perception is power perception is power so that's one element so yes we we want to tell people that we matter okay but you have to deliver you can't you know at at some point perception is becomes you know perception can't just become reality until you prove it okay but there's a Silicon Valley saying you know fake it till you make it okay I mean hundreds of software companies have raised billions of dollars on the fake it till you make it right uh concept right but but i don't want to talk about that necessarily i i I want to talk about capacity there's a classic saying you can teach a man to you could give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish okay that's capacity Mm -hmm. okay fishing gets you one meal you know learning how to i mean getting someone to fish gives them one meal that's the outcome of the project okay that's project capacity is having the ability to know how to do this uh, and 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 the mechanism and the structures to do this right uh, and that's what we're after. Uh, I, I'm actually, you know, you can pick a particular policy issue, and I'll tell you what I think. Okay, but I will give it up within Pivot if someone else believes something else. If I think it's more important for me to build a capacity, oh wow, than than that, than that. Uh, and people say that's compromising your principles. Said, no, you're thinking about it the wrong way. What's the outcome? The outcome is not that this policy gets done or that policy gets done. The outcome is: do we have an organization that can carry our communities forward
1: okay uh even if it's uh, diametrically opposed to the way you feel and, and see. No, no 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 that's why you have a mission and a vision you don't let people in
0: unless you agree on the mission and your vision okay all right but within that there's a ton of arguments and a ton right. of positions you can take and i'm actually much more interested in listening to the other person's point of view and then i mean of course if it's me and them we could have a pitch battle but usually there's a big group of people and then we have to like have a big discussion and then people come to some conclusion and, and resolution and consensus and that's the part that actually is more interesting to me yeah like, how do we get the consensus when there are these diametrically opposite viewpoints within the same vision right
1: you know uh the the idea for me when i see pivot is a very i mean it's in the name progressive and when people of a different stripe comes along and they see the branding, the word pivot and they see progressive and they've heard it for the last five years and they associate it with a certain type of uh, brand, Um, how do we get away from that sort of uh, polarization? Um, I hope I'm asking it in a way that's uh, that's clear. Well, I mean, the other side always
0: takes anything that's moderate to left as communism. Let's just call it what it is, okay? They do that. Like, Vietnam is Jib-mol, right? So yeah. we're like pigeonholing people, you know? Uh, I don't. We don't buy into that, that narrative at all. We don't care. You can call us whatever you want. We're, we're not gonna fight it. The generation that cares about communism and anti-communism is getting old. I'm just being frank here. Um, and that's a battle that needs to be fought. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if we have to get into that f- battle, we'll fight that battle. But progressive is, 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 is basically one thing to me, which is people matters. People matters more than ideology. People matters more than money. People matters more, people matter more than anything. That's what progressive means to me. I mean, first of all you, ask, you know a lot of people who are pro- progressive say, you guys aren't progressive. I'm like, who are you to define what progressivism is? As a matter of fact, isn't progressivism about you know everybody's having their own concept of what's right. Progressivism is not socialism. I mean, you, you want to be a socialist? You can be a socialist. I don't care, you know. But but it's not socialism. It's progressive. It's basically, to me,
1: humanism in political form. Okay, that's what it means to me. At the end of the day, is the person being taken care of in society?
0: Yeah. Uh, are we uh, It's both actually because I don't want to go too far into the individualism side of things like again The the, the classic sort of problem you're seeing now is you know, the COVID and the anti covid type people are like very individualistic And the rest of us are like very communal communal like that. We take care of the community um It's about both The individual person and the group of people aren't they taken care of? Uh, it's
1: both. It's not one or the other now, it's a really um, interesting distinction because it's it, it it the classification I mean these words matter right I mean the individualized uh, distinction versus the group distinction I mean there's so many different ways that we can approach that we're getting back to the zeros and ones again yeah okay so like
0: the people think that there's individual right and this community rights okay and I thought this going up because in Vietnam it was all community and it sucked like people would like put you, I mean, I, I was 10 years old and I knew that was it sucked because people were talking bad about people's bad behind people's back for the choices they were making in their lives. You know, uh, you, know it's, you know, having like live in that rigid community value way is no good. And I'm an individualist. I would never wanna live that way. And then you come to the United States and there's this huge individualism like me, and I don't care about anybody else, right? And that's what basically a, a person who won't wear a mask is saying. Me, and I don't care about anybody else, right? Um, but hardly anyone lives like that. Even the person who's not wearing a mask has a community of people who don't want to wear masks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. And a person who's all community is like, if my kid were like being beat upon because, you know... Uh, Uh, because they they don't look the way wear the same clothes everybody wears. I want to defend my kid, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's all this stuff, you know, and it's it's all every day. We make these choices about our individual needs and our communal uh, contributions every day. You do it like you go out there and you stop at the stop sign when there's no car coming across. Individually, you would have just gone right through it. <laughs> but communally, you're like thinking, eh, maybe it's a good thing not to go run the stop sign. You know, every day you make these decisions and sometimes you go on one side, sometimes you go on the other side. It's it's the dynamic that matters.
1: Again, back to the process, the dynamics. You know, you, you have a very measured approach as you look out into the world and everything, there's grayscales and there's uh, nuances to a lot of things. But that's not how our computer algorithms are being processed in the world we we are selected based on a couple clicks on our phones or mouses and we get put into camps do you think that there is progress with our world today uh despite the algorithm issue yeah
0: yeah that's a very interesting question actually i hadn't really thought about that but you're right i mean computers are, tend to do that. But actually, that's a very rudimentary understanding of what computers and, 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 and things do. Um, in, in health research, in particular, the one thing is, there's a new idea called natural language processing, which allows you to figure things out more than just zeros and ones. So um, you can study the way people talk and the way people write, and sort of figure out, you know, where they fit and things like that. But it is true that you know, if you're monetizing, Uh, technology they're trying to get you into one group or another but but it turns out that and then it is very dangerous in in more than the way you think because if i log on to social media and they give me certain ads it's not about one or two things that i've done it's about all the things that i've done that got me to that ad right so the goal there is for you to be completely identified from zeros and ones you're either this or that but it's like a million things that are zeros and ones so everybody has their own number now right so 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 that and, 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 you know, in some way that is the ultimate individualism, isn't it? I uh, was just telling you about this whole communal versus individual. The whole point in the monetizings of social media is that everyone's an individual. They're going to find the sweet spot for you. They're going to deliver you exactly all the things you want. That makes you different from everybody else, right? That's individualism. And that's why I'm not surprised that, you know, the rise of social media has caused, um, fractionalization and, and division.
1: And it's creating all kinds of mental health issues. Um, yes, it is. Uh,
0: but we always say uh, we always had mental health issues. See, mm. and we always had division. See, to me, you know, um, the older you get, the more you see things play out over and over again, and they just play out differently. Just like your kids, like your your kids take you know certain things about you, and they express it differently. You
1: know. Um so you, you don't sound very concerned. I mean I'm I'm extrapolating. I'm not well no no no. Remember, I'm I'm a process
0: person, I'm not an outcomes person. I am concerned. I am fighting. Okay. I, I do all that. I have to fight back. And and again, just because I see the pattern doesn't mean that somehow I will let it happen. You know, that's right. actually what empowerment is about, right? Um but it ebbs and flows. I'm not apocalyptic. Okay? The difference between what I'm saying, what everybody else is saying is that Oh, this is the end of the world. And I'm like, no, it's happened before, and it just takes a different form and maybe maybe a different magnitude even. But except for climate change, nothing's apocalyptic. You know? Right. Um, yeah. so 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 take the technology and I mean again, you know, um, there, you know, there's been a huge pendulum swing and I think what we're seeing is that the corporations and, and sort of the centralization of power and money is bad and it hasn't swung back. Okay. And that's one of the things that I think we're seeing and that's, what's causing a lot of these problems. I think, um, here, here's the thing, like, okay, Uh, I'll take an example with COVID, right? So right now, you know, about 75% of the people have gotten vaccinated uh, against COVID and about another 10 to 15% of people, I mean, about 10% of people are not sure. And 15% of people are like completely against the vaccine. Right. And people are like, wow, you know, that's a doctor. If I can get seventy five percent of people to do anything, mm-hmm. I'm happy. Yeah. Right? Uh smokers, right? You know, smoking's bad, right? Like who, who doesn't know smoking's terrible and it's cause it's just kinda COVID. You, you give cancer to other people when you breathe on them, right? So it's not like COVID, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, there's a communal aspect to the behavior. Um ten to fifteen percent of people still smoke. We have great treatment, we have great therapy, we have blah blah blah, blah blah blah. You know. They do um if i ask you a question about anything there's gonna be 10 percent of the people right. who, don't, who don't agree um that's that's how human nature is that's the zeros and ones you know um and so you know in, in the big picture not in a little in, in the current picture you have to fight against COVID misinformation you got to promote vaccines you have to figure out different ways of working without 15 percent, because I, I actually you know in health in people who uh do health education understand something very important which is they are individuals each person who's anti-vax is different from the other person who's anti-vax some of them are anti-vax for this reason some of them are vax for this reason some of them are anti-vax absolutely and some of them are like just a little anti-vax and for each of those person there's a message that you can work on and for the person who's closer to the vax it will go quicker and for the person way on this side it'll go longer okay
1: it seems like every issue in society can be looked at from that sort of perspective. I mean, take, for example, the I have a lot of friends and, and family uh, in one camp, anti-BLM, and they look at the stop Asian hate and they're always asking me, well, why can't you point out the fact that, you know, it's people of color doing that to our Asian and why isn't that ever so there's all these degrees but how do we make sense of it since the polarization in social media is just so effective uh
0: again i'll go back to the simple and the complex okay simple explanations are easier to accept and follow yes. complex explanations are much harder to explain and and, and incorporate um, so the difference between anti-asian hate caused by some people of color it's a simple explanation. The the hard explanation is why is this happening? What are the structures in place that make this happen? Right? And you can go down that path. You know, maybe it's more likely that some people of color are doing this because they are, you know, whatever explanation it is, you know, it's, you know they're poor or they don't have jobs and they get angry, you know, or they have mental health problems that are not being treated adequately by the system. These people of color, are in this place because of a certain amount of structural issues that put them there, okay? And and so when you see this happening, um, uh, you have to understand that if you just all you do is fight back against a person of color, yeah. you haven't solved anything. As a matter of fact, you also hurt yourself, right? Because um, this I mean, this is very clear. So black, not about talk about defund the police, right? So, you know, for a lot of black activists, defund the police is the key, right? because they are being incarcerated, they are being killed by police. If I were a black person, I'd be like, yeah, the police is the enemy. The Asian person is like, we're our safety is in in question here. We need more police to protect us, right? Both positions are completely valid. (laughs) But the solution isn't to say, well, we don't like the black people and we don't like the Asian people. (laughs) The question is, what is the real role of the police, okay? Right? Because truly, really, no one do want to defund the police, like no police at all, right? But can we have a police system where they're not killing black people and protecting Asian people? Why aren't we asking that question? Why can't we have a police system where they don't kill black people and they protect all the Asian people? What's wrong with that? That's what they're supposed to do, not kill innocent people and not and protect innocent people. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Yeah the conversation we cannot give that conversation to someone else because everyone who's in there going well you know asian people should be you know fighting against this thing against other people of color they're not there because they care about asian people they are there because of their ideology absolutely okay so don't buy into that but we do need a good reasonable response i can't be there and say well oh you know yeah you know, it's very complicated i don't have a solution my solution is Why can't we have a conversation with the police, protect innocent people and don't kill them, whatever (laughs) color they are?
1: Thank you so much today. I walk out of this uh, episode feeling more hopeful, more hopeful that the ability for us to have dialogue and get down to the nuances uh, is almost everything it's so important these days to have long-form conversations for people like me who you know I just I don't really get it and I don't really understand it and uh, to have you, somebody like you explain it to me and I think explaining it once isn't, it's still not enough I'm going to be processing this and probably asking you uh, to come back on again soon uh, to explain more things to me Well, thanks for having me on.
0: This has been great. Uh, No one ever sit and listened to me for an hour and a half before, uh, so this is good. Uh, But I will say this. You asked me what it means to be Vietnamese-American. Imagine yourself on a barge in the middle of the ocean. A barge, a barge that doesn't have an engine, okay? That's where I was. And imagine yourself now me, okay? That's a hopeless situation that had a good outcome. So to me, to me, hope, you have to be hopeful. And it is a fundamental nature of Vietnamese American to be hopeful. Don't despair. People who despair end up doing bad things. I, you know, to be very, to be very kind to all the anti-communist Vietnamese out there, they despaired. They despaired. They didn't look at hope. Mm. They didn't see the world as hopeful. And which is weird because they survive all these terrible things to be here and be alive and have their kids go to school and for some reason they focus on the past and the despair of the past and not on the hope for the present and the future and that's what it means for me to be vietnamese american is to stay focused on the present and the future and to make sure that everyone has a voice in the present and the future
1: and what you brought up earlier and throughout the whole episode about that condition of picking you know there's a, a real problem in your, you know, your life, your working life, not making enough money, and then there's this other far away issue that you can focus on and relieve yourself almost of the pain. Yep. Yep. Is a They're both despairing conditions. Yes.
0: But one is much more proximal, and one's much farther. And you can hope that somehow the regime in Vietnam is going to change. And it's easier to deal with that than to hope that your life is going to change. But they both should be hopeful things I, I I just don't I mean I'm privileged okay I'll be very honest I'm, I'm very privileged I, I, I live a good life I have a lot of control over my own destiny um, so I could be very naive about this uh, but having been in a place where I wasn't privileged uh, I think hope is the way and then you go back to the whole question about religion and Catholicism and all this stuff it's hope it is
1: not control it's hope
0: uh, and, and 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 that's what it means to be Vietnamese
1: American. Thank you so much, Anh I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thank you, Ken. Okay, bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Wynn. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.